Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for, he, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Awesome. What a great story from the book of Luke. Let's jump into it and, and try to unpack this. By the way, welcome back all of our, our teenagers that our youth that were on their first retreat. I guess stay awake or I'll call you out. All right. I will, I'm watching. Um, one of the things I love about Jesus is he would eat with anyone. He would, we find him sometimes at the house of someone who's an outcast a Pharisee, we find him at the house of the religious elite, like he, he would dine with anyone. And so Jesus has been invited to come to the house of a Pharisee. Now the Pharisee, he would have been like kind of the top of society in that community, respected religious leader. He invites Jesus to come and we kind of learn this from the back part of the story, but, but even before this woman comes in, there's already a tension in the air. There's already tension in the room. And here's why. We learn that when Jesus came to this Pharisee's house, the Pharisee did not extend to him just the common courtesy that would have been extended to anyone, much, much less a, a rabbi that's traveling through. So customary in those days, if you were going to go to the house of someone in a, in a Jewish society, when you came to the door, they would greet you with a kiss. If you've been over to Italy, to our partner there, they, they greet each other with kisses on the cheek. You would have been greeted with a kiss. You would have been offered water to clean your, to clean your feet and your hands, and then even oil 
to clean your hands and your feet. That was the customary uh, thing to do in inviting a guest. And we learn later on the story that none of those were offered to Jesus. It was almost like a calculated insult that this Pharisee did. So I think from the very beginning, we kind of learn behind the scenes what the Pharisee's plan is. His not, he is not inviting Jesus because he wants to learn from him and wants to ask him questions. He is inviting Jesus to this room because he wants to make sure that Jesus knows that he is not accepted in this community. It would be similar. As I, as I think through these, <clears throat> these teachings, I always try to think like, what would this look like? How do we place ourselves in the story? It would be similar if I invited you to dinner at my house. Emily, I invite you to dinner. When you show up uh, this Thursday night and you knock on the door and uh, you've never been there before, you knock on the door and, you, and I say, hey, door's open, come in. And you're like, okay, kind of awkward, I'll walk in. And so you walk into my home and, and uh, Emily and I are sitting on the couch and we're watching football because that's what Emily loves to do with me is watch football. We're watching football and you're like, hello. And I'm like, hi, what's up? Oh, go. Totally in the game. And you're kind of awkwardly standing there like, what do I, that would have been the environment. There's already this awkward tension in the room because everyone that saw this knew that this Pharisee, he, he's making a statement by how he treats Jesus. You know, he's probably mad. He's probably upset at Jesus. Um, Luke will tell us in chapter five that the Pharisees grumbled, saying about Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So he has, like, he's planned this. He's very... Um, angry with how Jesus operates. He's very angry with who Jesus interacts with, who Jesus eats with, and he's going to make sure that Jesus knows how he feels about that. Now, Jesus knew what's going on. He knew he wasn't completely welcome, but he stays. He could have left in anger, but he stays. And then in verse 37, we kind of have um, the next part of this story. So there's already this tension in the room. And then behold, a woman of the city enters the room. Now, this is always, again, as I read this when I first started reading this, like, this is weird. Imagine you're having a dinner party with some friends and all of a sudden this woman walks in and starts crying in the middle of your dinner party. Awkward moment, right? It's like, who invited her in? It's not what's happening here. So this is not a little home where this is private meal and all of a sudden this woman walks in. Um, it was very customary in those days when the Pharisees hosted a, a teacher just had a dinner that they would be reclined, they'd be sitting at a table, I'll actually show you a picture in a second, and the public would be invited to kind of stay on the outside, but to somewhat kind of participate in the meal, to listen in on what they were talking about. If you'll throw up the image uh, that, we, that we found, this is an artist's illustration of what this looked like. And so they didn't sit at a table like you and I do in tables and chairs, they reclined at a table, which means you had your, your feet towards the outside of the room, the table was on the middle, and you leaned on one arm, and everyone leaned in. Like, awful way to eat. I don't know what they were thinking. Like, how, how do you eat like this? I mean, you could shovel, like, just like eye level, you know, ground level to the, to the table, but it seems like after a while, I'd be like, dude, my, my arm's about to fall off here. That's how they would eat. And it's very likely that during this dinner, there were people standing around, maybe a crowd, maybe some coming in and, and, and going out. And it was out of this little crowd that this woman appeared. So again, let's take out this expectation, this idea that she just showed up at a party uninvited. That's not the idea. But that she comes in and you can see in this, in this, that picture that she is kind of kneeling at the, ed, at the back of the room, right at the feet 
of Jesus. Now, when she comes in, here's what everyone knows, is she is a sinner. She's a sinner. So as we look at this, this first part of the story, I want to look at it from her perspective, the woman's. I want to look at it from the perspective of Simon the Pharisee, and then we'll look at it from Jesus. But everyone knew that she was a sinner. Now, when we read that word, a woman of the city is sinner, we probably most likely automatically think, oh, she was a prostitute. We don't know that for sure. It doesn't say that. But whatever her sin was, it was blatant, it was obvious, it was broken. Maybe she was a prostitute, maybe she was an adulterer, maybe she was a thief. We, we don't know what it was necessarily, but whatever it was, it was her identity. Oh, that's Sarah, the sinner. That's Maddie, the sinner. That was her identity. And she lives in this Jewish society, listening to these Pharisees and how they teach what it looks like to follow God. And here's the reality for this woman. She is out. There are some that are in the Pharisee, but she is out. And she has probably been told there is no hope for you. Let me say it like this. So the, the Jewish rabbis in those days taught that repentance... which is that idea of turning away from sin to, to find acceptance with God. They, they taught this, that the repentance was a three-step process. Number one is sorrow. That's what they said. You must be sorrow. Like in your heart, you must be sorry for your sin. The next one was confession. So you must go to a priest and you must confess your sins. You must offer a sacrifice um, so that your sins can be paid for. But you must confess your sin. And then the third was reparations. Meaning, you needed to repair the damage that was done. You needed to go back and fix what you, and make right what you made wrong. Well, here's the problem. Let's say she was a prostitute. She could be very sorrow for, sorry for her sins. She could go confess that to a priest. How could she ever repair the damage done? She may not even know the amount of men she's been with. If she's a thief, she's stolen from tons of people. There's no way. So therefore, she was out. And she had most likely been told, there is no hope for you. You are an outcast from our Jewish society. You are an outcast from the temple. You are not welcome. God hates you. See, what the Pharisees believed and the message of the Pharisees is that God loves and rewards people that keep the law, that follow God's commands. And God hates those who don't. And as a matter of fact, the Pharisees would have looked at a woman like this and said, this woman, this sinner, is the type of person that is wrong with our society. Like she is the reason that we are under occupation from, of Rome. Like God is punishing us because of women like her. That's what he would have believed. And she would have been told there is no hope for her. There's no hope for you. Because the Pharisee message is God 
hates sinners. He loves people that keeps the law. But then this Jesus person comes along and he has a different message. And this message is blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor. Like the message of Jesus is God doesn't hate sinners, but God loves sinners. And so at some point along her journey, maybe even very recently, she has heard Jesus teach. She's heard this message. And for the first time in her life, there is hope. Maybe the greatest hell is having no hope in your life. For the first time in her life, there is hope. Because if Jesus accepts sinners, if God can accept sinners, then maybe God can accept me. Now, a lot of us, we see this, we see this and we, we kind of get this image that this is the first time that she's interacted with Jesus. That she comes in, she falls down on his feet, she's crying over, I'm, I'm such a shameful woman, I'm disgusting, I'm gross. Like that's the, the image that we find. That's not what we find here. Now, like when the, when the woman that's been caught in adultery gets drugged before the people, that's her. Like she got caught in the midst of her junk, drug right there. Here's what all the commentaries will say about this woman. She has already received the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. She does not come in, this sinful, broken, shameful woman who hates herself. She comes in a forgiven woman who has been made right. Jesus has said, your, your faith has healed you, you're, you're, you're clean, you're healed, and she is coming in and she is just pouring out all of her love and affection for this man that gave her hope. That's how she enters the story. So her tears are not her trying to prove to Jesus, like, Jesus, this is how serious I am over my sin, like, I'll cry. No, that's not her. She's not trying to pay for her sin by pouring out perfume. She's not wallowing in shame. She is overwhelmed by grace. There's a good chance that she was there and she saw Jesus like disgraced by the Pharisee by not even like offering him courtesy and she's so just like hurt that that's how they would treat and she just can't take it. She just comes and she's like, listen, I will wash your feet. I don't have any water, but I'll cry tears. I'll pour oil on you. She's overwhelmed by grace. These are tears of joy, not tears of regret. That's her perspective. What about Simon the Pharisee? Verse 39. The Pharisee said to himself, if this man were a prophet or if this man were sent from God, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. Like, this woman is appalling to him. Can, can you hear? Can you hear the, the contempt in his words? Oh my gosh. If he were from God, he would know what type of woman this is. He's angry. I mean, he's one of the protectors of the faith for Israel. It's these people that are the problem. And Jesus interacts with her. So we can't stand the fact that she's a sinner. Everyone knows it. She's interacting with Jesus. And this is another thing we may miss because if it's, a, it's a cultural thing. But not only is she a sinner and she's come and approached Jesus, but she's also a woman. In the Jewish culture, for a woman to come and approach a man that was not her husband, was you, you wouldn't do it. it. It would be grounds for divorce. 
for a woman that was married to go, to go approach and talk to a man that was not her husband, a woman's hair in the Jewish culture was considered one of the most sexually provocative places of her body. They kept their hair hidden, kept their hair up. Oftentimes, a woman would let her hair down for a man the first time on their wedding night. That's how much they value the idea of, of your hair being down and showing that. And for this woman to walk in to Jesus and let down her hair, shocking, shocking. So Simon looks at this and he's appalled. And he said, if, if, if he knew what kind of woman this is. See, here's what we learn about him is that he kind of believes that he's pretty good. That he's not that bad. And when you believe your status with God is based on your own obedience, then you will have little patience for someone who can't get their act together. And he has none for her. So this woman comes in, everyone knows who she is. Simon the Pharisee, he's, he's thinking, oh, what, oh, if this guy knew, there's, it's just awful. Jesus knows it. And now Jesus kind of is on the scene as he, and he said this. Like, so here, here's Jesus' options, right? This woman's come in, she's caused this scene. Every eyebrows are raising all over the room. Everyone's probably, I mean, the, the, the silence is, is awkward. Everyone's looking at Jesus, what will he do? Will he rebuke the woman? Woman, get out of here, you sinful. But how dare you come into my presence being a sinful woman like you are? He could rebuke her. He could apologize for her. Guys, guys I'm sorry. Like, we had a talk last week, and I've been working with her a little bit, but she hasn't quite learned the customs. Of he doesn't do that. He defends her. And I, look what he says, verse 40. And Simon, and, and Jesus answered to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, there's a reason Jesus is the hero and not me. Because I would say, Simon, I have something to say to you. And I would have said some really good things. <laughs> I'd have a lot of good words to say to Simon right now. But, he, and this, this is what should point us to Jesus like as a hero. Jesus is going to graciously and lovingly engage even the most self-righteous of Pharisees. And so he does it like Jesus does. He's not going to say, hey, Simon, I have something to tell you. Number one, boom. No, he doesn't do that. What's he do? He tells a story. That's how Jesus does it. Simon, I have something to tell you. Verse 40, 41. A certain money lender had two debtors. Now, when he tells that story, when he starts that, Jewish parables, like they ha he had a reason for every story he told. When he said a certain money lender had two debtors, everyone in the room thought, okay. There's two people, you have Simon, you have the woman, like Jesus is saying something here. One owed him 500 denarii, it's a lot of money. The other 50, okay, Jesus, I know where you're going. Like the woman, yeah, she's bad, 500. Simon the Pharisee, like, yeah, I mean, 50, he's been pretty good. He said a cuss word when he stubbed his toe once, but you know. He repented and all that. When they could not pay. Now, do you see what Jesus just did? Everyone knew that woman had a debt that she could not pay. 
But everyone assumed the Pharisee was right where he needed to be. What did Jesus just tell the Pharisee? Buddy, you got a debt too. And you can't pay it. When he could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Just canceled it. Debt's forgiven. And Jesus questioned, now which of them will love him more, love the money lender more? Which one? And Simon answered, and I love it. Simon can barely make, he can, he can barely even get the words out, like the one I suppose from whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, yes, you've judged rightly. See, here's what Jesus does is he goes right after the heart of the Pharisee and exposes the fact that this Pharisee is clueless about his own shortcomings. Clueless about the fact that he, no matter how good he becomes, will never measure up to God. Like it's a temptation for us to think about our standing with God based on our, our sins or our actions. So it's like, here's, here's many of how you come to church today. Like, and you're trying to decide, like, as I'm singing, what, what's my standing with God? And automatically it's okay. How did my last few weeks go? How, how did I treat people? How was my language? Like, did I do that sin? You know, the bad one that I told God I'd never do again. And, and, and depending on how you did there, depending on your actions, this measure that you use will determine kind of how you feel about God and how God feels about you. It's this idea of like God's Simon Cowell, right? The little memes that you do on text where he like stands up and he's like, well done, well done. Yep, you nailed it. Or he'll stand up like, no, bad week. That, that's the temptation. We all, we've all done it. We all do it. How does God think about me? What's my relationship with God? How am I, as far as being right with God, automatically thinking about our behavior? But Jesus blows that up because here's what he says. Both have a debt and both cannot pay it. So we don't measure our standing with God by something inside us, within us, our standard of what good is. We don't measure our standing with God there. We measure our standing with God by something outside of us. Let me say it again. We don't measure our standing with God by something inside of us. We measure our standing with God by something outside of us. If you've been through the green book with us, here, here's the way the, the green book shows it. Is there's two lines that are going opposite of one another. And this line up here is our realization of God's holiness. What God demands, what, what righteousness means, what it, what it means. And, and the, the idea here is that when we first become a believer, like, I know a little bit about God. But as we grow in our Christian life, we understand that God's holiness and his standard is far beyond what we could ever reach, even in our best day. And we understand the depths of our sin. And we understand, like when I first came to Christian, I knew a little bit. I, I did a few bad things. But as we grow in our life, like time is going this way, this line goes down because I'm learning more and more about who I really am. And so I don't measure to decide if God, like if I'm right with God, I don't say, man, have I kind of met up to this line? Because I realize I can't. So here's what happens. The cross fills that gap. So I don't measure my stand with God based on my performance. I measure my stand with God based on Jesus' performance. That Jesus lived the perfect life, 
die to death, and by faith I believe that. Therefore, my debt is canceled. See, Simon, maybe if I could draw what Simon believed, here's God's standard, and here's him. They're not that far apart, and if he just acts a little better, he can surely move this line up to earth. That's what he believed. And Jesus just exposes it. So don't judge or stand with God based on something inside of us, our idea of morality. We judge it by something outside of us. Verse 41 or 44, Jesus uh, just kind of, pulls, kind of points out to the elephant in the room and said, hey, Simon, remember when I came in and you didn't show me any courtesy? Well, this woman came in and she is pouring out everything for me. And he kind of tells us why. Jump down to verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many. Notice Jesus doesn't shy away from him. He's like, yeah, they're many. You all know it. You all know what it is. They're many. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Here's what Jesus shows us. If I am forgiven much, meaning I realize that I'm a wreck. And what will happen is I will love much. If I'm forgiven little, like, you know what, I'm not that bad. I've done a few things wrong here and there. I love little. Little love. Little affection. See, here's the reality, guys. Simon didn't need Jesus. So therefore, he didn't love Jesus. Simon was pretty good himself. So there's no need for Jesus, so therefore, there's no love for Jesus. Let me talk to us. Some of us have been Christians for a long time. Long time. And here's the danger. Like as, as we're Christians for a long time, and some of it's just as we mature in life, we don't, we don't do some of the, you know, the quote, big bad ones, like all these college students do, just sinners, right? Just my heathens. Anyway, we don't, we don't do those. And so the danger is, Though our sin is not quite as obvious, it's a little subtle, it's there. But the danger is that we start thinking and becoming less aware of really our brokenness and how real it is because we're not doing the bad ones. And therefore, we become less repentant and therefore, we lose affection for Christ and love and reliance for Christ. That is a great danger. And so we come and we sing songs about the grace poured out for sinners and Jesus. We're like, yeah, that's good. I remember that. I know that. I've sung that song 50 times. And we lose it. One of the things I love in our church, my favorite Sundays ever when we do baptisms. I have one coming up in a couple of weeks. And if you've been here for our baptisms, one of the things I love is the look on their faces and the emotion that's real. Because some of these people we baptize are a couple of weeks away 
a couple of weeks removed from some awful decisions and some awful hurt and some awful pain. And that realization that though I was this, now I'm being dunked in water in front of these people and being told that God accepts me, emotion. Those that have been forgiven much, love much. The danger for long-term Christianity is, like you've been a Christian for a while, is, I mean, I was forgiven by a lot back, forgiven a lot back then, that was 20 years ago. I'm not bad. See, here's what happens. As we grow in our awareness of God's holiness up here in this top line, and as we come to the, even long-time Christians continue to grow in our awareness of our sin, like that should be a lifetime process. Here's what happens. This cross fills that gap. And what's happening to the cross? Talk to me. What? It's getting bigger. Love, affection for Christ. See, where there's no love and affection, there's probably a very little cross. Like, I'm not that bad. But as we come to depths with who we really are, even 40 years after we've been a Christian, and we reflect on that and reflect on God's holiness and learn more about him, like, here's what happens. Love grows. Love grows. So here's the invitation of Jesus to Simon. Simon, what if you try to know yourself? Like, Simon, instead of just looking at all the sinners and pointing to them as the problem, what if you instead said, you know what? I might be the problem. Simon, what if you know yourself? Here's what John Calvin said, who's a guy that's a little bit famous in Christianity. Um, Near the whole, nearly the whole of the sacred doctrine, all of Christianity, consists in these two parts, knowledge of God, and knowledge of self. Knowledge of God and knowledge of self. It's those who have, who are most conscious of their own self, their own sin, who have a greater love to the Lord. So here's the invitation of Jesus. Look in the mirror, which is scary. Hold a mirror up and look. And look at who you really are. Like the invitation of Jesus, look into the darkness. And, and I'll draw it like this, because I think, I think simple. I'm sorry. I'm going to draw a heart. It usually turns into looking more like a butt. But I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> that one, the first one was better than that. The first one I nailed it. That's, yeah, that's a butt all the way. <laughs> so if this, if this heart represents self, like your own heart, knowledge of self. Like, here's the invitation of Jesus. And I want to make sure we hear this today. It's to know that self. Because here's what we want to do. I, this is what I want to do. I want to draw a line about right there. Like, it's easy for me to come to Jesus or come to one of you and say, you know what? Sometimes I judge others. Yeah, I do. Sometimes I say a bad word. You know, so, sometimes I gossip. Like, like if that's your knowledge of self, you know what's going to be the result? Little love for Christ. You're not that bad. But here's the invitation of Jesus, and I'll tell you, this is scary. 
The invitation of Jesus is to know the real self. Like this is the part of you that you hate. This is the part of you that you've said, quote, I will never tell anyone this. This is part of you, spouses that think, if my spouse knew this about me, they would reject me. See this, though we've been Christians for a while, is our continual battle with lust. And I don't think there's a guy in here that's like, huh, what do you mean? Huh? I don't know. But in this are the things that I'm really afraid of and anxious of. Down here, those are the addictions, and I'm talking the ones that I hate that are real embarrassing to talk about. Like here, here's what I want to do. I want to stay right here with myself, with you all, and with God. That's what I want to do. And then I wanna to try to fix it. I just want, oh, I just gotta fix this. I gotta make myself better. That's what I want to do. But somewhere down deep, I know that I'm a fraud because that's not really the real me. So we, we all know the idea of pretend to be something we're not. How about to really be something that you're pretending you aren't? What about when you are the thing that you hate? The invitation of Jesus is knowledge of self and not the self that's kind of put together and kind of presentable, but the self that you hate, that's embarrassing, that's vulnerable, that you want no one to see. If you read our story this week on Facebook, you need to check out our Facebook page. Here was one this week. A girl that had an abortion. And she promised herself, I will tell no one for the rest of my life. You can read her story. But she knew it. And she knew God knew it. Because see, if we don't allow ourselves to really go here, ourselves with other people, then we're gonna keep, we're just gonna keep repeating these same patterns. We're just gonna keep showing up because they're there whether you realize it or not. It's true whether you want to acknowledge it. It's reality. And therefore that reality will keep playing itself through every human relationship you have year after year after year after year. The invitation of Jesus is you have nothing to hide. We say it all the time here. If the gospel is true, you have nothing to hide. Knowledge of self. This woman came in. She had nothing to hide. Everyone knew it. And because of that, she had been forgiven much. And therefore, there's much love. This quote comes from Recovering Redemption. Look at this. He says, you have no shot at experiencing real life change in life if you're habitually protecting your image, hyping your spiritual brand, and putting out the vibe that you're a lot more unfazed by temptation than the reality you know and the reality that you live would suggest. See, here's God's invitation. 
is to bring your real self. Not the self you're proud of, not the self that other people here might accept, but the real self. That's God's invitation, to meet him in weakness. Because here's what happens as I bring my real self, is things start to change from just knowing things about God to knowing God. This idea of transformational knowing. So I can know things about God. I can know that God is loving. But transformational knowing comes when I realize that God is loving to me even in the midst of my addiction. I can know that God is kind. Transformational knowing comes when I apply God's kindness to the reality of the abortion. He who has been forgiven much loves much. Transformational knowing. So when I look, because you're like, well, that doesn't look like much fun. Well, it's not, I'll tell you. What's the big point? Like, what's the big deal? Here's what happens. I want you to see this. Because as I acknowledge to myself and to other people for the first time who I really am, and then I understand that God sees who I really am. Like, whether you like it or not, God sees it. You ready? Here's what happens. But when I realize it, not only does God see it, but God accepts me right here. Boom, grace floods in. And I've seen that in my job of working with people over and over and over and over again, where someone finally says, okay, fine, I've never told anyone this, but, and they just lay out their shame. And I'm like, hey, Jesus meets you right there. And I still love you and I accept you. Actually, I have more I gotta look at you. I have more, like you're strong, you're courageous. I respect you now. And now shame starts to wither. This woman comes to Jesus with her full self, and all of a sudden grace is just overwhelming, and therefore she just pours it all out. Here's, here's what I want to do, but the lights here don't allow me to do this. Because if you shut the lights off, they don't come back on for a while and that'd be a little awkward. But here's what I want to do. I want to take a big, a big spotlight and just like shine it here and be like, oh, that's bright. I was going to shut the light off and then shut all the lights off. And we're just going to sit here in darkness for like a minute. I love awkward silence and it'd be awkward silence. Just sit here in darkness. And all of a sudden, without you know it, I was going to just turn that spotlight on and just blind you all. Right? Because if you've ever been in the midst of, of just extreme darkness and all of a sudden light comes in, it's just like overwhelming. Right? Guess what? Light comes in to the darkness you want to keep hidden. Boom, overwhelmed by grace. Love much. And that's what we see with the woman. See, the result of knowing self is a love for God, and then it's a grace towards others. See, Simon didn't know himself. He didn't have much. I mean, he he was like right here. So therefore, there's no grace and forgiveness from God, and there's no concern for anyone else. There's no affection anywhere else. So when we talk about being a gospel-centered church, this is what we mean. I hope you've learned it by now. Every time you come here on a Sunday, we will sing through and rehearse the gospel through our whole gathering. Every single week, we'll remind ourselves of God's holiness. The next thing we'll do, Scott had an awesome transition today. Uh, We'll acknowledge the fact that we are sinful, broken people. 
then we will remind ourselves that the cross is what fills that gap, not our performance, and then we'll respond in our love and affection by coming up and receiving communion to celebrate the fact that our sins are forgiven. We do that every single week. Because the danger is if we don't, we grow stale and we are forgiven little and therefore we love little. Let's end this, close this up here. Verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those at the table begin to say among themselves, who is this? Even forgive sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now that's key. I want us to see that. What saved the woman? It wasn't her tears. It wasn't her pleading for Jesus to save her. It wasn't her perfume she poured out. None of that saved the woman. What saved the woman? Faith. Your faith has saved you. And faith in what? It's not just like faith in Jesus. It's faith that this. If I have any hope, any hope of getting to God, of being made right with God, it is only on the cross. The death or the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That is my only hope. That's where faith is. So God's not inviting you, if this is you, like your whole self, God's not inviting you, hey, show me your whole self and then start fixing this. And here's the deal. If you can start battling your lust problem, then, then maybe I'll accept you. Hey, if you can start taking care of this addiction, like, no, that's not the invitation of God. The invitation of God is let me meet you in the midst of all of your brokenness. Believe that I've paid for that and believe that when I see you, I delight in you. That's faith. It's transformational and it will change your life. But it requires knowledge of self. And the easy thing to do is walk out another week keeping all of your secrets to yourself and continue to live the same cycle. That's the easy thing to do. But the invitation to Jesus is Let's come to depths with who we really are. Let's acknowledge that to God, to ourselves, to others. Let's start to find hope and healing. Here's why I'm so passionate about this. I was Simon the Pharisee. I was your guys' age in my 20s. I grew up in a very right and wrong Southern Baptist church. Like, I knew the list. And I was doing everything I could to try to measure up and try to live a good moral life that I couldn't, man, I had, I had some stuff down here that I didn't tell anyone. And I hated myself for it. But what I would consistently do to, to make myself a little better about that is I would just compare myself to others. So I had a list of what to do and not to do. And I was always sizing up the competition. You would have been the competition, by the way. As long as I'm better than Brad, I'm good to go. That's how I lived. And I was always insecure with my relationship with God, where I stood. And I had no grace and compassion for those that kept messing up. Really weird. That's how I lived. And I can still remember, I'm 22, 23 years old. I'm laying in, in, in my bed in Pierce City, Missouri. I'm a school teacher and I'm living, I'm trying to wrestle through like this, just like hardcore, like legalist, Simon the Pharisee life. And someone encouraged, I don't remember who told me to read it. It's a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. I'd encourage you to read it by Brendan Manning. And this book, like, turned the light on in my darkness. And it's in, in the, that little season of reading this book that God completely awakened my eyes to the reality of my sin and also showed me the grace and mercy of God. It's why I'm here. Because I'd have given up a long time ago had I kept putting it on my shoulders. 
And there's one passage that I'm gonna read for you. It's kind of a long one. That's the one that just kind of like irked me when I read it. It ticked me off is what it did. But it was the best thing that could have happened for me. And this, this, this quote, uh, and so before I read it, let me just tell you this. This is not, this book is not just like, hey, anyone that believes in Jesus is good to go. Like, God loves everyone. That's not it. The message of this book is grace through faith, faith in Christ for salvation. It's not a universalist type thing. But I hope it shocks you a little bit. Here's what he says. Because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe Still gets me, man. It's been a long time. I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, that's Revelation chapter 7. It's like the end of times. I shall see, because salvation by grace through faith, I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion. And is haunted by the guilt and remorse, but did the best she could face with grueling alternatives. The businessman besieged with debt, who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure pastor addicted to being liked who never challenges people from the pulpit. And long for unconditional love, the sexually abused teen, molested by his father, now selling his body on the street, who as he falls asleep each night after his last trick, whispers the name of the unknown God he learned about in Sunday school. The deathbed convert, that's someone who kind of comes to Christ right before they die, who for decades had his cake and ate it too, broke every law of God and man, wallowed in lust and raped the earth. How, we ask, how could they be at the banquet seat of the Lamb? Here's what he says. Then the voice says from Revelation, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There they are. And there we are. The multitude who so wanted to be faithful, yet at times got defeated. Is that you? Soiled by life, invested by trials, wearing the bloody garments of life's tribulations, but through it, clung to the faith. My friends, if this is not good news to you, you have never understood the gospel of grace. Man, that's beautiful. See, the invitation of Jesus is bring your whole self, even the part you hate, find grace and mercy, and be welcomed, and then let Jesus start to change those parts of you. It's a beautiful process. Let's pray together. Jesus, we celebrate, we thank you that it is not up to us. May we have the courage this morning, each one of us, to kind of go below the surface and confess who we really are. And then may we look to the cross and understand that who we really are is accepted by you, and may that lead to just this overwhelming knowledge of grace, this transformational knowing of the love and affection for you. I pray um, 
for our men and women out here. I pray that they would be welcomed as they are, that for the first time ever they might come to one and say, man, I need help, and this is my reality, and they would find grace in the midst of that. I pray for that courage this morning. Pray for the longtime Christian that's kind of stuck in morality. I pray that we would come to depths with who we are and be overwhelmed by grace and our love and affection for you just stirred all the more. Pray for the one that's here that came thinking like, I'm out. God, I pray that even this morning they would realize there is grace for them and no one's too far gone. And now we as a community, as we sing, as we receive communion, we just celebrate you in Jesus' name. I pray, amen.